this is not a legacy that I wanted to leave for our kids and grandkids as an industry. Um, and our kids now are very well, of this, uh, well aware of, of Earth and the environment and how we take care of it and how we treat it. Um, and I just really think that with all of this technological innovation around here, the worst thing we could do is leave millions of old wells and hundreds of billions of dollars of plugging liabilities to the next generations. Yeah. When at the same time, we're, tr we're trying to provide efficient fuel sources to, to run economies. So it's a cycle of life, yeah. right? It's, it's like, you know, in simple terms, um, if you've got young kids, you know, go out and play, but clean your room up first or go do your homework first yeah. to, to get what has to be done first. Oil and gas makes modern life possible. The energy the world requires today and tomorrow will come from decisions made in the oil field today. Oil and gas will remain the leading source of fuel to power affordable energy that is sustainable for the billions of people that depend on the success of the industry. The oil field is a group of people, companies, technologies, and institutions working towards providing the world with safe, clean, storable, and transportable power. The Oilfield 360 podcast is a 360-degree deep dive into the leaders of the industry who will provide listeners with a first-hand account of what it takes to build, maintain, and lead the energy business into the future. The Oilfield 360 podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Lockton Global Energy and Marine, uncommonly independent. Lockton is the world's largest privately owned insurance broker and risk finance advisor. Lockton's global energy expertise is centered in Houston and represents the largest concentration of energy specialists, clients, and experiential knowledge in the upstream, midstream, and downstream segments of the oil and gas industry. Visit Lockton.com for more information. Upright Digital. Upright Digital specializes in partnering with your business to maximize marketing efficiencies. We have a deep understanding of people, their needs, motivations, behaviors, as well as the technologies that enable brands in many industries to utilize what is available in a changing digital landscape. Find us online at uprightdigital.com. Well, hello from OTC. I'm David DeRoad, one of the co-hosts of the Oldfield 360 podcast. I'm joined here with my special co-host, Jim Wickland. Jim, how are you this morning? David, I'm doing fabulous. It's, uh, you know, back at OTC with the crowds after the pandemic, you know, shut down and all. This is spectacular. And, and we were talking, you walk into the hall and you think, boy, I sure must be depressed. Till you walk into this hall and you go, is it is it 2013? Am I, did I miss something? So I'm, I'm doing great, and this is fun. Yeah, no, it's it's good energy. I had breakfast with our good friend Lauren Singletary this morning, and, and uh, uh, he was abuzz with, with all the stuff that's going on. Kind of feeling like what it used to. He still owns enough NOV stock. He cares what happens, and they really need a resurgence in deep water. So everything's coming along for those guys. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Well, 
We're joined here by a dear friend and, and uh, somebody I've, I've, I've known for a number of years and, and uh, really excited to uh, see what he's up to and talk about what he's up to. Uh, Tony Sanchez, thanks for coming on and joining Jim and I. And uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, about yourself and what you're up to with One Nexus. But maybe before we start, maybe you could give uh, our listeners a little background on yourself where you're from, how you got in the uh, oil and gas business. and Your formative years. Your formative yeah. years, yes. <laughs> it's a long time ago, but thank you for having me, David and Jim. Um, this has been a, um, uh, a pleasure to do, and I appreciate you and you including me. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I'm from South Texas. I grew, da- grew up down in Laredo. Um, you know, if you drew a line between Houston and San Antonio on south, those were my stomping grounds growing up, and been in Houston for about 20 years now. Uh, families originally uh, in the oil and gas business from my grandfather and dad that started 1972 drilling wells in South Texas onshore. Uh, so I grew up around the business. I was a I was a gauger in high school, and even before I could drive, uh, I was the guy that opened the gates for the gauger. Uh, you know, uh, before high school. So uh, the business is in my blood. I love it. Uh, I think it's integral to the workings of, of the economies around the world. Uh, I think that um, provides job and is a leader in technology as we could see here. Uh, so it's always fascinated me. Um, in the back of my mind, it's, it's been an industry that I, I've always wanted to get into. I knew I was going to get into it. I knew I had an entry point. Um, it took some time to go do other things uh, before coming into the business around 2000 full time. Um, bought and sold a lot of properties, drilled a lot of wells, fracked a lot of wells, watched the evolution of the unconventional plays take hold and uh, really admired the, the innovative nature of this industry. And, and that's what uh, just always struck me as, as being so attractive. And so I've, I've, I've really liked it. Um, and I think that uh, uh, my personal view uh, is, that, is that the oil and gas industry is going to be fundamental and central to whatever our future is as, as a planet. For a long uh, time. Human For a time. long time. Yeah. I got to ask you, as a gauger back in your formative years, did you ever happen to see any of those big old rattlesnakes hanging out in some shadows of the you know, those no, tanks? No, just a few. Yeah, you, yeah. Just, you carry around <laughs> one of those little 410s. Yeah. You know, pop the them judge. every now and then. The judge. That's right. Um, yeah. Uh, well, you know, Laredo, Texas during July, real fun place to be. Drink a lot of iced tea and get a lot of air conditioning. It's real cool there, right? Yeah. 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 It's actually not as painful as Houston because yeah. we don't have the humidity. But, that's uh, true. Yeah. That's where that's I true. My first job out of college was working for Western Geophysical out of Beeville, Texas. All right. And, and really good times was when we'd go on Spike and spend the weekend in Laredo. That was just as good as it got. And stay at La Posada? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Don't get me started on La Posada stories. <laughs> one of my favorite places. There's songs written about it. Yeah. 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 Well, listen. Um, you know, you and I are both passionate about uh, the industry, and you've recently, with with your team, have put together. I just think a, a game-changing concept as to how we address an issue that I think a lot of people are familiar with, uh, both onshore and offshore. And that, unfortunately, these uh, these wells, they don't produce in perpetuity. Eventually, they. Uh, they uh, run their course and, and they have to be responsibly uh, dealt with. And so uh, I think you've come up with a very novel idea in One Nexus. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, 
what led you to starting One Nexus, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about what what uh, what solutions One Nexus providing to to operators. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so really, the genesis to One Nexus was probably around the year 2020. I was driving around South Texas, probably at a hunting ranch somewhere, um, and I noticed and, and had always noticed wells um, they had not produced for a long time. Um, and in the back of my head, I always sort of had a thought of, you know, what, what's ultimately going to happen with these wells? As you mentioned, you know, good ones might last 100 years, but some of these have been out there for that long. And um, on our ranch near Laredo, uh, we've got wells, you know, before API um, indexing and recording and tracking was done that uh, are sitting there unplugged, and they've got John Paul Getty. Uh, you know, on yeah. on the sign that's that's rusted away, but you could you could see it, and it's you know nestled into some mesquite trees, bushes, and stuff, and you got to get through the thorns to get to them, but they're there. And uh, that initially caught my eye around 2019, 2020, and I started to notice it more and more. Um, and just driving down the highways around Houston, West Texas, really anywhere, any oil-producing state, even just driving around the highways, you see these wells. But if you know what you're looking at you know they haven't produced in a long time. Yeah, sure. And so, you know, I used to gauge these, these wells. And um, <clears throat> we've got a, I was down hunting one time um, on another place and, and there, was a, there was a road that dead ended and you could see it on Google Maps and so I decided to go down that road and there was a well pad at the end of it. Well, there were full grown mesquite trees on the road, <laughs> which told you there hadn't been a pickup truck down that road a long time. in a long, long time. Um, and sure enough, the well hadn't produced for a while, and it had depleted out, and um, operator go unnamed. But it was it was an operator that's around and active and and functioning, and is, has a, a very good capitalization. So the question came in came out that that was was what are we going to do about these? And as an industry, these wells, you know, ultimately start stacking up, and they have been stacking up, and so. I put a team of people together, um, engineers that worked with me in the oil and gas business, and um, through a fortuitous um, you know, meeting, uh, found another guy that hadn't been in the oil and gas business um, who came on board, um, but really provided an outside-in-look approach to, to this, and we set about trying to solve the problem. And I firmly believe that this industry, whenever you present the industry with a problem, it's got the innovation, technological know-how, and the fresh approach at looking at things to, to go out and solve it. Um, and so, you know, ultimately what we know now is that, is that there's millions of wells uh, that are not producing and the industry is drilling 10 to 20,000 wells onshore a year in the United States um, and then more in Canada. Um, and ultimately we came to the conclusion that had the industry had a good way, an efficient way to deal with these, it, it would have. have. Yeah. Um, and so we started talking to oil and gas companies and saying, you know, if we developed a product uh, to solve for this, um, would this be something you'd consider? And the, <clears throat> the answer unequivocally around the board was yes. We would look at it. They've been kicking the can down the road for years, and now you give them the opportunity to take the can away. So Right, and I, and I, and, and I believe, and I, I found, and I believe this from the very beginning, that the, that the management teams and executives at these different companies, publics and privates, small and large, all want to do the right thing. Yeah. Um, and they all want to do the smart thing, and they're all in this for the long haul. And if you give them the right tool, they'll solve the problem. And they don't always do it now. Right. They'll do it. Right. But they don't always have time, energy, capital, whatever, to do it now. So 
old wells are a pretty easy thing to just we'll we'll wait. Maybe the technology will change and we'll re-enter the well. There's been all sorts of you know comments by people, but for whatever reasons, yes, we've done a great job of not getting it done, even though the goal was always understood. Right, and these wells change hands, yep. and so they go from the big company to the medium company, to the small company, to the stripper well operator at the very end, uh, who might be operating these on a shoestring budget and doesn't have the money to go plug a well that might cost $50,000 to plug or 100000 to plug. And, and we've bought wells. I've bought wells where you want to go in there and rework them. And, you know, a lot of times it doesn't work. <laughs> and now you've got a plugging bell that's $100,000 a well. You've got 10 wells, that's a million dollars. Now you're talking cumulatively, that's a lot of money. Um, and I think that's the source of the problem. So, so we set out to solve this problem because we think this is not a legacy that I wanted to leave for our kids and grandkids as an industry. Um, and our kids now are very well, of this, well aware of, of earth and the environment and how we take care of it and how we treat it. Um, and I just really think that with all of this technological innovation around here, the worst thing we could do is leave millions of old wells and hundreds of billions of dollars of plugging liabilities to the next generations. Yeah. When at the same time, we're, tr we're trying to provide efficient fuel sources to, to run economies. So it's a cycle of life, yeah. right? It's, it's like, you know, in simple terms, um, if you've got young kids, you know, go out and play, but clean your room up first or go do your homework first yeah. to, to get what has to be done first. Now, are you, are you trying to recover more oil from the wells that you buy or are you just buying them, taking title, and as soon as you can, P&A them? Neither, actually. So let me get out into what the design is and what we came up with. Um, we've, we've basically come up with a way to provide a life insurance policy for oil and gas wells. Okay. And we were initially faced during the design of this company and this product with the question, why don't you try to go get a little bit more out? <clears throat> well, I've tried that before. So did and, Tetra, so have other people, and, yeah. And so have a lot of other people. And typically by the time the well makes it and is not producing anymore, there have been a lot of really smart engineers trying to get a little bit more out. So we determined that we were not going to try that. That also saved us a lot of, of time and effort and expenses setting up the back office to administer that with yeah. joint interest billing, landmen, all that sort of stuff. As we talked to oil and gas companies that I had mentioned before, we said, well, what if we set up a trust account? Uh, or what if we do a sinking fund structure? And there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm about that. And the reason being is that it wasn't permanent in nature. And they really wanted, given the long life of these wells and the long duration of these wells, they really wanted something that was safe and secure and regulated and that was going to be here for another 100 or 200 years, you know, as these wells ultimately produced. So that took us back to basically, and this is right about the time I started talking to David, and David has provided some, some really insightful advice in helping us determine this and has become a partner of ours at One Nexus, um, but an insurance-based solution. And I've mentioned life insurance. And so we've ultimately designed um, a product that is fundamentally based on life insurance principles that you apply to humans, but we apply them to oil and gas wells. And we have a financial product that the operator could buy that basically guarantees funding for when that well is, is, has died. And just like in life insurance, the earlier in the life's well that you purchase the product, the, the more efficient it's going to be. Yeah. We'll sell it 
and, and are selling it to companies that are operating stripper wells, but it becomes more of an expensive proposition. It's, you know, it's like if you try to save for retirement when you're 50, 60, 70 years old, it's going to be a lot more expensive than if you started when you were 20. Similarly for life insurance policies, um, we're applying those same principles. We're working with insurance companies and actuaries that are experts in life insurance. Okay. And uh, for instance, um, our outside third-party actuarial firm is a firm called Milliman, which is like a Netherlands Sewell, you know, or a Collie Gillespie, or a Ryder Scott, but for reserves. They're kind of the gold yeah. standard for actuarial work because we've, we've built life models for every producing well in the United States and Canada. And we can underwrite a life insurance policy for that well to guarantee that there's money when it comes time to plug the well at the operator's discretion. Whoever owns it, whoever, whoever has it, if they keep wanting to get uh, more out of it, then they don't have to uh, cash in the policy. But when it comes time to plug that well, call it $150,000, we'll guarantee that that funding is there. So somebody could then go buy an old well, go try to get a little bit more out of it. If it doesn't work, now they don't have to come out of pocket 150000 They just call one Nexus, and we write the check for 150000 pay for the reclamation and, and plugging costs. But, but at a significant discount to what that right. would cost in right. today's dollars if they were to just fund it out of cash flow. Well, $150,000 coverage amount for a well that's being drilled today, it'd probably cost twenty or 30000 yeah. You know, Insignificant when you're spending millions to go drill it and complete it. And, and who's on the hook for the 150000 in 15 years? We are, one nexus. So if David, if David DeRodes Oil and Gas Company, if he had one, drilled a new well, bought coverage for that well and paid us whatever it cost, twenty dollars or $30,000, depending on how much coverage he wanted, it's a one-and-done deal. Or we'll, we'll, you know, we'll uh, space the payments out over time. But generally, long before the well comes due, that policy is established and paid up, and at that point, we're on the hook. We're the ones that are guaranteeing it. We have um, shifted the risk yeah. of duration and guarantee and credit risk. We've taken it on. Just like when you go buy a life insurance policy, now the insurance underwriter is on the hook to make that payment when the person dies. That insurance company, though, is going to have billions and billions and billions of dollars in investments that they've been running for years to have that capital available. That's right. Where is your capital coming from to, to do this? So the primary source is the premiums itself. We take those. Um, we have formed an insurance company. It's domiciled yeah. in Oklahoma for various insurance company statute reasons that, that we, we could get into later if you all want. Uh, but we have an insurance company established. It's in Oklahoma. We collect the $30,000 from the operator, and we put that into the insurance company. As we aggregate these up, we then, it, it's regulated now by the insurance regulators in Oklahoma. Uh, we've partnered with a group called Strategic Risk Solutions that is technically the, the, the manager of that insurance company. Okay. Uh, Milliman is our outside actuary. We have a distribution and advisory partnership with Lockton on the distribution and sales side. Uh, so we put all the pieces together. We take those premiums in, and every year, as, as we're aggregating more and more of these, um, we have to hold a certain amount of regulatory capital against those. Yeah. And it's generally about a 10 to 15% amount that we have to hold against all of these uh, contracts that we've aggregated. And so that capital uh, comes from Munich Re, the big reinsurance company based out of Germany. It's been around for 200 years. Okay. Um, it's the largest reinsurance company in the world. 
they really latched onto this. We were going to go out and raise money from, from a syndicate of these guys, and they basically came and said, we like the transition theme. We like the, the, the ability to invest in the decommissioning because we think it's better for the industry. Um, and we'll stand behind it and do the whole thing. Damn, fine godfather you found. Right. Very, yeah. very lucky to have uh, partnered up with Munich Re. They have been um, incredibly, you know, value added as we've developed the models, as we've understood the risk. You know, depending on how we structure these deals, there, there could be credit risk to it based on the company, based on the purpose. Um, they're really involved um, and they're standing behind the whole thing, which is what the regulators did. One common question we get from a lot of oil and gas companies and regulators and other stakeholders is, well, how do I know you're going to be around, Tony? Exactly. And how do I know One Nexus is going to be around? Well, the way we've set this structure up, we don't have to be around. And okay. we, we've set this up for longevity, for permanency, and for trust. Once that money goes into the insurance company, it can only come out when it comes time to plug that well. Whoever's operating that well at that time files a claim with us like you do if, if uh, you file an insurance claim. And the key trigger to that claim is the plugging certificate that the regulator has issued saying it's already been plugged or the operators filing a no notice of intent to plug the well. Yeah. Uh, you can't just call us up and say, I want to cash out my $150,000. You got to go plug that well and then we will write the check for 150000 and then you could use that money to plug the well, to remove the surface <laughs> facilities, to do the testing of, of, you know, the pad and all that, to move the caliche, to take out. We're doing, um, uh, we're underwriting these for uh, gathering system uh, sections where they want to make sure the surface use agreement calls for um, uh, a guarantee that, that certain sections of pipeline are removed, all that sort of stuff. And so. We could structure these to really meet the objective of the client, but the key part here is that these monies are permanently set aside and escrowed and guaranteed for the plugging and abandonment, the decommissioning, and the surface reclamation. The Inflation Reduction Act included a huge amount of money for, for P&A. Does that bill, that act, have anything to do with what you're doing? Did that help you? not help you or no effect at all? Well, it did help in the sense that it brought um, a lot of attention to the problem. Um, the orphaned wells that everybody is reading about that are coming around through this Inflation Reduction Act, that's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. That's, that's by the time the well really is no one around uh, and no one there to pay for it. Um, the, the liability that's accumulating at the industry level, just for onshore Canada and the United States, no one has an exact number, but on the small side, on the low side, it's about 300 to 400 billion dollars and then moving up. And if you're drilling 20,000 wells a year and just call it 100,000 bucks a well, that's, that's, that's growing at 2 billion dollars a year. So the magnitude is huge and it's not getting any smaller. Yeah. And I think the reason is, as we mentioned when we started this podcast, is that the management teams and the operators in this industry, as well as the funding sources, have not had an easy to use, cost-effective way to administer this liability. Try. And that's what we've, we've tried to solve. Uh, and that's what we're solving for. And not one company we've spoken to has said, no, I'm not gonna use that product or anything like it. Most of them have said, I'm interested, let's talk more. It's a very interesting dynamic, which really kind of highlights the positive intent 
of the management teams that, that we're dealing with in this industry. Most want to do something. They well, just want to do it within their capital budgets. It's an accumulating liability. That's right. And none of us like those. No. no. <laughs> uh, and if you can find a way to discharge the liability, all of a sudden it's it's all free runway for the production. So That's right. talk about able to sleep at night. It's an accumulating liability that is only dischargeable by doing it. That's right. A bankruptcy judge cannot discharge this liability. It is it, predecessor and interest that we've all read about, particularly offshore Gulf of Mexico. Companies that drilled wells 30, 40 years ago are now finding themselves on the hook for billions of dollars in decommissioning liabilities. Yep. And so the only way to do it, because it's a physical liability, you have to go plug a well. Yep. And if you don't plug the well, bad things could happen. It could become an environmental risk, a health risk, whatever. Um, well, it's starting to be mandated, too. I mean, that was yeah. one... One, to me, uh, one issue of the Inflation Reduction Act is to put the spotlight on the fact that we have a lot of these orphaned old wells and we need to clean them up, but we're creating more of these every day. Exactly. That's the issue. It's so not static. Our mission is no more orphaned wells. If we, if we establish coverage today, there will be guaranteed funding for that plugging expense and decommissioning liability. Guaranteed. In the bank. So our, our mission is really to stop the bleeding, stop the accumulation now, and then kind of work backwards to solve the existing problem. I think one of the most interesting things that's come out in some of the conversations, I'd love for you to talk about that, but maybe before that, maybe you could talk about how operators have traditionally addressed um, this, this issue, uh, you know, kind of find this like losing weight it's it's difficult to uh to to do but it's it's doable um talk to us about how traditionally operators have addressed this you know utilizing surety this this promise to to execute etc sure uh, there's a variety of mechanisms but but primarily the industry has utilized surety and surety is a promise to pay uh, you pay a surety bonding company two three four percent perhaps more, perhaps put down some collateral so that that surety company could be there in the event that you don't meet the obligation as the company. <clears throat> so essentially you're getting hit twice with that expense. Yeah. We've come up with a way to structure this to where it could go in place of surety, it could go in, in addition to surety, or it could enhance surety, uh, depending on what the company wants to utilize and whatever that uh, regulatory regime calls for because there's big differences, as we all know, between Texas, New Mexico, Oklahoma, California, these different oil producing yeah. states. Um, so we've really tried to, to come up with a solution that could fit any of those, uh, depending on what's needed. But yeah, typically companies have used surety um, and they will go uh, ultimately sell the assets to another operator uh, and expect that operator to meet the obligation. And then many times that operator sells the wells again and on down the road to where at some point, someone's gonna own those wells that doesn't have the money yeah. uh, or has better things to do with the money. And, and, and it's, not, it's not a solution that has really met with, been met with finality. Uh, and so what we've done is come up with a way to, to, to basically solve for that so that the industry could be, if you think about the, if you think about the life cycle of an oil well, it's you know, start, you, know, you build the pad, you drill it, you produce it out, and then you sell it on down. You produce a little bit more and more and more. At some point, we got to close that final loop right. uh, for that specific well. And I think if the industry does it, it puts itself in a position to have 
you know, the societal permit to continue to, de to develop new wells and new areas yeah. and but, new resources. But with surety, though, you're not you're not necessarily capitalizing solution. You're just it's it's a it's a cost that you continue to pay until such time you've met the obligation. Whereas I think what's interesting about your concept is that you're you're actually capitalizing a solution at a discount to what it would otherwise cost you, and the money's held there almost in trust by the insurance policy um, that is funding the contract or would fund the contract that you're making with the operator, which I think is is interesting, in addition to the fact that you have multi-beneficiaries that can be a party to that contract, like the regulators, et cetera. Can you talk to us without maybe naming some of the names of some of the folks you've been talking to, some of the some of the discussions you've had with the regulators and what their response has been to, to this solution? Yeah, um, generally pretty positive. I think you described the dynamics with surety very well. One of the reasons why David's been a part of this since the beginning. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we're working with regulators uh, at the state level. We're working with the BLM at the federal level. Um, we've got oil and gas clients, large and small. Um, we typically, um, these days, are working with um, EMP operators that have specific, uh, specific purposes for this product or problems they're trying to solve. So, for example, uh, a company that operates a lot of wells, but they might uh, have 25 or 50% working interest, and they've got partners for the rest in, in non-op. Um, we've had companies come to us and say they're worried about the ability to collect from the non-ops. You know, once, once those wells are not producing cash flow anymore, good luck trying to yeah. uh, collect on that jib to, to plug the well. Yeah. And, that, and because the liability is joint and several, and it's non-dischargeable, the operator, even if the operator owns 50%, he's on the hook for 100% of the liability if his partners don't pay. So we're working with companies on that. We're working with companies that are selling assets <clears throat> and want to protect themselves from predecessor and interest liability. Uh, with major oil companies that, that we all know um, that are selling assets in non-core areas and are requiring the buyers to post bonding for that. Uh, we're yeah, working with those, those big... In addition to the regulatory bonding they're already In addition to the regulatory bonding, that's right. And these could be significant. You know, a $10 million bond might cost the buyer three or four or five hundred thousand dollars a year just in cost plus collateral. And we'll go out and sell them a $10 million policy uh, to those wells. One thing we haven't touched on is, is our policy is allocated to the API number. See, that was going to be my next yeah. question. So ownership, trail of ownership doesn't matter. You're insuring the well. We insure the well to the API. So that policy wow. has a schedule. They list the API. So if you want to sell that well, our coverage will travel with the well. Okay, that's huge. That, that really is. It really is because it allows an operator to recoup their investment if they decide they want to discharge of that asset. And we, as we all know, operators love to swap. They do. You know, and they're trading in and out of acreage to block up positions, to, you know, based on where they are. Uh, I think it's it's a huge deal. And I think, Tony, you want to talk about maybe some of the inquiries that, that you guys have had related to, you know, the A&D world and, and how this product is being viewed to, to maybe help facilitate transactions that historically used to get stopped right at when they finally realized uh, – the financial assurance requirements that would be associated yeah. with it. Ultimately, and, and, and 
A&D and transactions where we're spending a lot of our time. And we're working with uh, facilitators of those transactions, um, like the companies that have you know, the auctions and, and those types of companies. We're working with the bankers and the lawyers. And I've bought, a lot of, bought and sold a lot of properties myself. And, and ultimately, when, you, when it comes time to buy the property from the buyer's perspective, you know, you're looking at that liability that you're going to take on. Absolutely. And you could PV tenant all you, all you want, but when you're the buyer, you're taking it on. Yeah. And um, 10 years ago, it was not a high priority. The last few years, things are changing, and it is becoming more of a high priority because Absolutely. people are now asking, or, or people are now acknowledging what is that liability. And that liability now in A&D transactions explains most of the bid ask spread. Yeah. between the buyer and the seller. Once the seller has gone through their data rooms and their bid le- uh, stages, many times most of the bid, bid ask that's left at the end prior to PSA signing is largely explained by the two different perspectives of looking at that asset retirement obligation. What is that liability that's been taken on? Just say it's $10 million. If that bid ask is <clears throat> $12 million, $10 million is explained by, yeah. by that. And what we've done... We could slot our product in, like reps and warranty insurance or something like that, at that point in time, and basically finance that liability at a discount. So we could take, by doing it at a discount, because we're, we're underwriting the duration of the well, so we're going to say those wells uh, you know, might have another 20 years on average of productive life. So you could get a pretty big discount to the face value by discounting it back for 20 years yeah. on our actuarial models. Um, and we'll be able to close <coughs> most of that gap um, for A and D transactions, and provide protection to the seller, and protection to the buyer, protection to the financial sources for the buyers. A lot of these times, it's uh, these questions are coming out from the the, the money sources right. that are financing these transactions and saying, okay, if I'm gonna put the money up for this, am I gonna get stuck with a liability, and how do I hedge it? And that's where we slot our product, and we've been finding a lot of success success in doing it. I realize that insurance is kind of a hedge in general anyway, but but if, if I can sit up there and know I'm buying properties that have P&A insurance on them, that, that not only improves my price, but, geez, that's a uh, contingent liability that's taken off the table. That's right. That's significant. That's right. And we've seen a few instances. Uh, we just signed a deal um, last week where... <clears throat> where the operator is actually going to the regulator to get brownie points from the regulator. Uh, and it's, it's not in Texas, but it's in another state where the regulator is, is wanting to know how they are going to be decommissioning and where that money is going to come from. Yeah. And he went to them and said, I've just purchased this contract and this is exactly where it's coming from and state of so-and-so. We've listed you as a beneficiary. So if that operator's not around and those wells end up orphaned, the state could call one nexus and say, you know, I'm plugging these wells. Give me the money to plug them. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things about the conversations that have been had around the product, um, it, is, it is facilitating conversations with the regulators that I think, quite frankly, uh, is a guy who works with a number of operators and, and you know, have interacted with regulators on this topic over the years. Uh, it's facilitating conversation that allows for a partnership between the two bodies that I think historically there's True. been there's been some friction there, and, uh, and a, as an observer, I think uh, the regulators 
really like uh, the concept in the sense that it is creating uh, a, a permanent source of capital yeah. that's going to be there. there. There's there's other mechanisms that have to come into play in the um, the current ways of addressing this that still uh, leave a little bit of uncertainty um, associated with with uh, those obligations. And so it was something that. You know, after my breakfast with uh, Lauren, I went and had a cup of coffee with Will Goodwin, who has uh, partnered up with David Dunwoody and, and Esperanza and the Cockrell uh, family uh, as they look at the Gulf of Mexico. And, and uh, you know, Will's involved in Cantium Steel on the board and uh, has been an offshore operator. And that's certainly an area I think uh, One Nexus is looking at in, in, in the future. But uh, he, he did say um, that you know part of their success is is having that relationship with the regulators and sitting down with them. I think in most cases everybody wants to find an amicable solution, and uh, uh, I'm encouraged about uh, the conversations that are that are occurring with the regulators. I think one of the most interesting things that that uh, I've been a party to. Uh, are the light bulbs going off with some of the regulators and going, hey, we have, uh, we have this portfolio of orphan wells. Uh, we also have some funding either, either provided by operators that are paying into an orphan well fund or, you know, as it relates to the IRA. However, the mechanism in which One Nexus is created to um, kind of hold that money in trust to, for those obligations that needs uh, some partnership with the, not only the operator, but the regulators to think about duration and a schedule for plugging that. Yeah. <clears throat> Could you guys maybe possibly look at being a custodian to this capital for us and, and help us manage and grow that capital in a, uh, in a uh, tax preferential uh, environment similar to what you're doing on the, on the commercial side of things? And I think that's going to be... Uh, that's going to be an interesting uh, dynamic to watch. Obviously, um, you know those types of conversations will, will need some legislative action and some other things. But I think uh, I think the model in which uh, you guys have created to address this issue is is it's kind of simple and it makes you go, you know, why didn't somebody think about that earlier? Because because the, the, the life insurance model and concept is is worked and been around for a number of years. Uh, but there's got to be discipline in how you manage the capital, and I think yeah. you guys have <clears throat> have um, uh, the appropriate uh, parties in place to, to make sure you don't get over your skis and and uh, create something. Because that was one of my my biggest questions I had for Tony is, tell me how this thing's not going to go bankrupt in two years. Well, you know, and and that's another reason we did it in the regulated structure. So in the life insurance industry. Um, there are some very tight, well-known regulations of what that capital could be invested in. Mm -hmm. um, and basically, we collect the premiums, we put them in the insurance company, and once they're in there, it's investment-grade corporate fixed income, it's you know, U.S. Treasuries. It's, no risk. It's, it's no risk. That money's going in. It's lockboxed. Only a regulator could approve withdrawal under certain circumstances okay. for plugging liabilities. Um, it, it is really meant to be conservative 
there's no debt on the company, so it's conservative, it's regulated, as, as, we've, as we've spoken about, and that also determines how that capital is managed. Um, and and those, those principles are very well tested in life insurance for humans. And we've taken a lot of those same models of people that are working in that industry and turned their attentions to this and applied the same concepts. Um, and that life insurance has worked by and large for, for years, <laughs> for people, uh, for years. If you put all of my 35 grand into the insurance company, how do you get paid? Well, we take um, a couple thousand bucks up front uh, for administrative and, and that sort of stuff. Uh, and then 35 will grow to 150 by the time that, that well it's, it's due to, uh, to be plugged. Uh, and if we grow it more, right, within the guidelines we're talking about, ultimately we could release capital from the insurance company. But that's a very long, long-dated, long-dated uh, perspective. Um, and so at its most simplest, um, we make money by underwriting, right? So yeah. <clears throat> when you underwrite the, uh, the policy, and it's better to think about this in terms of populations. So we're now taking duration risk, right? We take the duration risk. You do. We're saying we're going to underwrite to 20 or 30 <coughs> years, uh, and, we're, and we're making a bet on you as the operator and the basin and the sub-geology. So we've got geologists, petroleum engineers that are all working this data as well. We've, we've developed these models at the individual well level and cohorts across every producing basin in the United States. So there is a duration bet that we're making. Yes. Um, but uh, fundamentally, <clears throat> if, we, if the charge on the policy is 35,000 to establish coverage, we're taking 2,000 for our costs and we're putting 33 into the, in, into, the, uh, into the insurance company. And we do it on a bottoms-up approach. The models basically start with how much do we need to put in? Yeah. And then how much do we need to pay the distribution channels? And how much are we allocating for G&A and marketing and for doing all that kind of fun stuff? So the models really start with the base amount necessary to put into the insurance company and then build up from there. And part of you know, the, 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 the layers above it um, our allocations to our own expenses and, and revenue. And your ability to scale is through the roof. Well, that was another thing. Um, I wanted a, a, a company designed to operate very efficiently with a relatively small amount of people. But yes, we can, uh, we can in our underwriting, you know, coast to coast in the United States, we've been we started this for onshore, but we keep getting dragged offshore. You know, we're, I, we're, that was going to be my next question. It's a different way of looking at risks yeah. uh, there. Um, but we could apply the same principles to that. Uh, but it is a very, it's a different, it's a different risk profile. You know, it, instead of a lot of small $150,000 risks or $100,000 risks, you're dealing with a few very large ones. Yeah. Um, so we wouldn't take that risk offshore. Uh, we would set up basically savings accounts under this structure to do this for offshore uh, and apply them there as needed. But, but for the most part, we're focused onshore 99% of the time. Okay. It's certainly going to be an area you'll look to, but I think, you know, this is a relatively new product. Um, it really kind of kicked off last year. So you got to build up reserve capital. and, yeah. and uh, But what a great disintermediate intermediation of a business i mean you're taking the oil business and life insurance and and you're you know 
building the middleman position for you. Hence, I think it's great. Hence the name One Nexus. Yeah, we were taking life insurance, we were taking oil and gas engineering, and we were taking finance and creating a problem, a, a, a solution for an existing problem that hadn't been Single solved. Single Nexus, yeah. Right. Cool. Well, Tony, thanks for coming in and talking to us about One Nexus. Um, I'm really excited to see uh, your idea kind of take off and, and the light bulb go off in people's heads and about the application, uh, whether it's solving a problem or helping uh, helping facilitate an answer to, uh, to, to, to getting a transaction done. One of the things that we like to ask our guests, so on every one of our podcasts is, you know, is there any advice you might give to any of our listeners or or uh, aspiring young entrepreneurs as it relates to lessons learned or or anything you might like to pass on from your own personal experience. Pearls of wisdom. Pearls of yeah. wisdom, yeah. <laughs> well, there's quite a bit. I, I think from the entrepreneurial side and the, the younger generations coming in is, is stick with this industry. This industry um, is so innovative and the technologies that are developed in this industry, whether it's a physical technology or financial technology like what we've developed, um, you know, or second to none in terms of this industry's ability to deploy capital, to solve problems, and to develop resources. And it is a, as you can see here at OTC, I mean, there's people, walk down these aisles, there's people from all over the world that have come to Houston to participate in this industry. And you opened the podcast with, you know, the, con the thought that, that you know, it's back, it's busy. You know, the t the, the 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 other side of COVID uh, has really brought people together. And you just look around these these halls and these walkways here, and you and you see evidence of it's that. Amazing, and yeah. I would, you know, I I would encourage people that are, um, you know, going to school and determining, you know, thinking about what they want to do for their careers to to seriously consider this because it's dynamic, it's big. You know, and there's people from all over the world involved. It's very international. And we're going to be the ones to take the lead in cleaning up the environment because we've got the money in the operation. So. Absolutely. There, there, is, there is not, you know, this, this, this whole environmental argument about has, has been a them versus us argument both ways. Yep. And it should be an us and us. It, That's it's, correct. The solution is here. Agreed. And it's not a replacement. It's an enhancement of a resource. Well said. Um, is my opinion. Well said. I agree. Well, thank you for coming on, Tony. Thank you Tony. very much for having me. I've listened to your old podcast before, and um, I've waited anxiously for the invitation. <laughs> so when you, when I got it this time, I was here. So I, uh, I really appreciate you all, you all including me as part of this conversation. We appreciate Perfect. you taking the time to come on and and, and talk about uh, what you're doing. So for the benefit of the audience, uh, if they want to go learn about One Nexus, what's our uh, website? OneNexus.com. Yeah, cool. Makes it easy. Easy. Yeah. O-N-E-N-E-X-U-S dot com. Thanks, Tony. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. The Oilfield 360 podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Locked in Global Energy and Marine. Uncommonly independent. Locked in is the world's largest privately owned insurance broker and risk finance advisor. Locked in's global energy expertise is centered in Houston and represents the largest concentration of energy specialists, clients, and experiential knowledge in the upstream, midstream, and downstream segments of the oil and gas industry. Visit LockedIn.com for more information. Upright Digital, 
Upright Digital specializes in partnering with your business to maximize marketing efficiencies. We have a deep understanding of people, their needs, motivations, behaviors, as well as the technologies that enable brands in many industries to utilize what is available in a changing digital landscape. Find us online at uprightdigital.com.